Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption. Good to see everyone here. Uh, I was thinking about you this week, uh, specifically a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, I don't want you to answer it, um, just to think about it. Um, we're going to have thousands of people who don't normally show up on Sundays come today. Last hour, we probably had three or 400 people standing. Um, this room is packed. It's, it's full now. Here's a question. I'm glad you're here, by the way. That's no, that's no slight. It's just really exciting that there's so many people here. But why is this day a big deal to you? All other days, all other Sundays, why does the world show up on this day? I don't, I don't know what your answer would be. I don't even know if you like the question, to be honest with you. It might cramp your style too much. But it's, it's at least where I want to start. Because to me, I'm glad and I'm excited that we're here, but for whatever reason, everyone kind of aligns on this day for a particular reason. I just wish I knew the variety of reasons. Um, I know why we're here. I know why we did, did this. I know why we set up all these chairs and did the video and why the worship team prayed and practiced. I know why we did that, because we desperately want to tell you a story. And uh, just on the inside track, as a preacher, sometimes I get writer's block. So Monday, Tuesday, I sat down to write something to say to you, and I don't know. You're, you're talking about something everyone's familiar with, a very old story, and I'm trying to find a new angle, a new way to say an old thing. And I thought to myself, I, I got to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I read this small paragraph, and I thought, I don't want to do a new angle on an old story. I just want to tell the old story. There, there is an old story of what Christ has done and, and what he has given to us if we believe. Every, everything that you've just sang, or at least heard others sing, is the old story. In fact, uh, Paul writes to the church, the church in Corinth, lots of reasons why he wrote that letter. They've got problems, they've got questions, they've got sin. He's dealing with all of that. You get to chapter 15, and, and Paul kind of funnels his thoughts to the foundational pieces of what everything's anchored to, the gospel. And in a few short sentences, he describes everything I'd ever want to tell you about this day, this moment, and why you should care. And my, my hope is why you showed up today. Let me read it to you, and, and it'll make itself clear. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared... To Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, last of all. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Right there, Paul, in that short little paragraph, gives the essence of the story of, of the gospel. Um, the, the reason why people show up at church, at least on Easter, because they know that much. The claims of what Jesus, the reason why he came, and what he promised to people. Um, I think it's interesting how Paul lays this out very specifically, like arguments of the truth. The first thing he said there, and I hope you noticed it, he, he said, I, I delivered to you what I thought was most important. The most important thing, something I also received, which is very, very important to deal with. This is not something man-made. Paul didn't conjure up the gospel story of a, of a Lord, a life, a death, and a resurrection. He didn't do that. This is not a fabricated story. Paul received the truth from the source of truth, who is Jesus him, himself. This is unlike every one of those mysterious visions 
people of so-called prophets who make up their own version of life and living. Paul gets it straight from the source of truth, the creator God himself. Remember when Paul, Paul, before he was saved, before he was a Christian, he was a Christian killer, a church persecutor. He was on the road to Damascus to do more damage. And Jesus spoke from heaven to Paul and said, basically, Paul, what are you doing? At one point, Paul's heart was blind and his eyes were open. At that moment, Paul's eyes were blind and his heart was open. Very interesting little twist. What happened to Paul? And he's not the only one who would say, I heard, I, I'm an eyewitness, I'm an accountant of this truth. It's, it's a fact. In fact, Luke, who is a highly educated uh, physician by profession, who keeps copious records and notes. In fact, we get a lot of our details of the gospel story from, from Luke. He wrote this as he begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word we have delivered, they've delivered among us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Luke begins his gospel, tell the story of the life, the words, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that we've just sung. Peter himself in 2 Peter makes this claim about the facts, the testimony of the truth of what he's declaring. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Over and over again, there's these men who witnessed the words, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, and they're speaking to that fact. Paul said in the very beginning of this paragraph in 1 Corinthians, it was given to me. I didn't make it up. Now, I know just saying that last minute or so, that's a problem for some of us because we live in a relativistic world that somehow has made, made truth subjective. I mean, it's really funny to even say truth when we're talking about what we believe in because people would say of you, if you trust in something they don't agree with, they'd say, well, isn't that nice for you? Good for you. Kind of like you're the crippled one who needs that. I don't need that. And so they've basically eliminated conviction. They've pushed truth away from them so they can be their own source of truth. But you know that's foolish because there are absolute truths that are absolutely applied to everyone. You just might not like the ones that, that Paul is talking about, but you know at least there's absolutes. And that's why you're probably on a journey. Maybe that's why you showed up today. In fact, um, as an illustration, a couple months ago, my wife got busy. We formulated our taxes and sent them in. I was so looking forward to a return. Big dream. Looking forward to a, a return. And I got a letter back a couple of weeks ago saying I owed them $4,000. Okay? Now, I thought about taking this whole subjective truth thing to its highest level and just writing them a, a note and saying simply, I don't believe in you. Maybe they would just go away, but I, I kind of figured that wouldn't work because they, they know where I live. Now, now, here's what I'm saying. You laugh because you know it's absurd. Yes, you can't escape the reality, the absolute truth of the expectations of the IRS and your income, right? You can't get away from that. Well, here's what Paul says. There's an absolute truth when it comes to Jesus. It's certain. And when it comes to the story about Christ, his words, his resurrection, we have to deal with the eyewitnesses' accounts, those people who were there, who saw it, who touched it, and he deals with some of that here too. The next thing that Paul says in this little paragraph is probably the, one of the reasons why this day is so special to us. That is, he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. I don't know too many people who don't know that truth even as a mantra, something they've heard somewhere along the way of life. 
But that's why we're here. The reality of Jesus' death was that no one took his life. He gave it willingly. There was an intention by God the Son who left heaven and took on flesh. He came intentionally to give his life. No one um, caused his death. He gave it. He was arrested on, up to, uh, on trumped-up charges. The trial was a joke. There was no evidence. Uh, Jesus, who was all authority, could have spoke up for himself at any point in time. And my guess is he would have won the argument. I, I, my guess is he could have avoided the cross just by his authority. But he kept his mouth shut intentionally because he came for a reason, to give his life. And we know what the reason is, to make a payment for our sin. Every sin of you and me who put our faith and trust in Christ, that's why he came to give his life. In fact, this is what the scriptures say of Jesus. Even prophetically speaking before, when Jesus was here before he died, he said to his disciples, I'm a good shepherd, and a good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. They didn't know, but that's what his intention was. In Mark 14, Jesus told his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. When the angel arrived to tell Joseph and Mary to name their son Jesus, it was because he will save his people from their sins. The apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2 that he is the atoning sacrifice for sins and not only ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Now if you were here with us on Friday night, we were out in the commons lawn together focused on this one particular truth. Nothing else, just the reality of Christ's death. And here's why it's important to understand this. is because everyone everywhere has fallen short of God's standard. Everyone everywhere is a sinner. We have offended God by our life, our decisions, our actions, and our motives. And as a result, God's holy justice is stored up. And the Bible says the consequences of being a sinner is we get death. Jesus stepped in our shoes, and he received the death that we earned by our rebellion. That's the story. I'm hoping you came here today because that story moves you, and it's what you believe in. God came down in flesh to live the perfect life and give the perfect life as a payment for our sin now Paul says something in this short little sentence. I, I call him the captain of the obvious because he says, and Jesus was buried in verse 4. Here's what I know about people who are buried. They're typically dead. Um, now, you might think that's funny for me to even bring that up, and here's why I have to say that, and that's why Paul put it here. There were people trying to suggest that Jesus didn't die. And here's why it's really important that that, that part is true and in here. Because if you can say he never died, then there's no such thing as a resurrection. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, you don't have to deal with God. You're absolutely on your own. It's, it's a free-for-all. We can make it up and do what we want. But here's the reality. He made these claims. He lived this life. He died this death. He rose again to scream to the world that it's true. Now we got to deal with God. Honestly, don't we? If I could bring the resurrected Lord right here in the flesh right now, you would change your perspective. And that's exactly why it's here. He died a death. Now, I don't know uh, a little bit. I don't think the Romans were necessarily that precise about their medical prowess. Okay? So I'm not certain how much they understood about when somebody was gone completely. But I do know this about the Roman soldiers. They were world-renowned killers. They were professional killers. In fact, their job, their life was at stake if they didn't carry out the execu execution as, as was commanded. So there was no doubt whatsoever that Jesus was, was dead. 
And here's why this day matters. It's probably why you showed up wearing pastels today, okay? Um, <laughs> I saw a guy in a pink shirt. Um, it's okay. Here's why we're here. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah? He rose, he rose from the dead. Now, if you, have the, if you have the memory to think back, if you've read the Gospels, you heard Jesus talking about his life and his intentions way before he ever went to the cross. And he said things like, I have come to give life and life more abundantly. I've come to give peace that you can't even describe. I've come to give joy and hope and life eternal. Now, here's what I want you to know. Everything that he said rides or falls on the reality of the re- resurrection. Do you understand? Everything's at stake. All the promises, all the hope that sins can be forgiven, that life can be eternal, that I can have joy in spite of circumstances are all anchored on the reality of the resurrection because if he didn't rise, we got no hope. It is what it is. But he did. And the evidence is staggering. Not only do we have the empty tomb, which is obvious, we have this Roman guard that was, met, was put there in place to make certain Jesus didn't go anywhere. Their life was at stake. If he goes away, they end their life. That's how this works, and yet Jesus is still gone. You have the empty grave clothes. You have this wonderful yet profound little illustration that all of the opposition to everything Jesus was and everything Jesus said, right, had people trying to prove and discredit him, Okay? And all they had to do was produce a body. All anybody had to do, all this opposition, they said, well, here he is right here. And they're still looking because he's risen. I think one of the most profound things, at least from my vantage point, that, that screams the evidence or the reality that Jesus did was how the disciples were changed. Maybe you've read the Gospels, but it says that the disciples scattered in fear discouragement, depression. These guys had given years of their life to follow the dream. And in their minds, the dream was over. He was hanging on a cross, and this was bad news, and he died. Just a few days later, you have the most profound, courageous, joyous men preaching messages that will get them killed. Who would do that for a lie? Nobody would. They stood up in boldness and in courage in front of the most horrific people in the world and said, he is God, we are sinners, and we don't trust in Christ, we're doomed, right? And we know the story of the apostles. Most of them died horrendous deaths because of that, because of that truth. And yet there was joy that Jesus talked about that was unspeakable and full of glory. The last thing that Paul brings up, if you're going to just talk about evidence, he says there's witnesses. He appeared to Cephas, and then the 12. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, and then to the, all, all the apostles, and last of all, to me, Paul says. Now, now here's, here's what you need to know. I mean, I suppose if, if you're confident about the truth that you're declaring, all you have to do is tell people, here's a whole bunch of people, go ask them yourself. They're still alive. These hundreds of witnesses are still roaming around right now. Go ask them about the resurrection. Go ask them about Jesus' life. After all, you've got, you've got this unbelievable story of sins can be forgiven. And that Jesus drank the, wrath, the cup of God's wrath for us. The resurrection is the evidence that you can believe that stuff. Right? 
If there's, if there's any hope that those things are true and that we can be truly covered, then there has to be a resurrection. If sins are going to be paid for, if it brings life to dead hearts or restores a relationship to God, we have to believe that Jesus came back from the dead as a victor over Satan, sin, and death. Amen? And it means this, all right? It means that your sins can be forgiven. I want you to listen to that again, because some of you have lists of things that you keep secret, that you're absolutely convinced there's no way God can deal with that one. Like your train wreck is the worst train wreck. You're the exception to God's rule that grace can't apply to you because of all the things that you not only have done, but are doing and have yet to invent. But if the reality of the resurrection, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true at all, it means that God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. There's a word that we use called atonement to describe what happens here. That because of my sin, because of your sin, God's right wrath is being built up. That one day it's going to be turned and poured out on those who rebel from him and reject Jesus, okay? For those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, Jesus bears the weight of God's judgment. And by faith, we go free. We go free. This wonderful truth that we are covered now in righteous robes of Christ, free from the condemnation of sin. And there's a hope for tomorrow, by the way. You know this, right? There's a hope that because of the reality of his victory over death, there's a day coming when we're free from sin and we're free from sickness and we're free from the burdens of this world and we're with Jesus forever. Amen? I got to put a caveat on it, though. Sorry to crush your dreams. This truth You can't have these promises unless you embrace Jesus completely. And I have to say that word completely because a lot of people are okay with Jesus. In fact, the classic American thing in 2014 is to possibly add a little bit of Jesus to my currently held collection of things I love. Jesus didn't give us that option. He's not okay with sympathetic supporters. He wants disciples. Come and follow me, he said. Here's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Open up your hands and give him your life. You lay down your pride and your things and your sin and your issues and your Jesus plus issues and you take Christ alone. And if you lay down your life, the scriptures make it very, very clear that he gives life, life that transforms you today, life for tomorrow. Now, my hope was that you got in your car and drove here this morning because that's the story. That's the reason why you're here. That's why you came. But I'm not stupid. Some of you came because there's ham in about an hour waiting for you. Or, or because you have no place to wear your pastels, so it has to be Easter. Um, sorry. Um, or you're trying to appease a family or a friend. Either way, I'm cool with what, whatever brought you here. What I'm asking you to do is deal with these claims. Jesus didn't declare himself an option. He declared himself as the exclusive one and only, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets saved. No one has hope. No one has their sins forgiven. No one has, no one has eternal life. No one can make a, 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 something clear out of your mess other than Jesus alone. All you have to do is lay it down and pick him up. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for you being the one who drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours because all the payment has been made. Thank you for the life because you rose again that is now ours because of your work. God, thank you for the hope and the joy that are real, not just some kind of pie in the sky, but a real hope and joy today because these things are facts and certain and they're guaranteed. God, I pray for us that what would fuel our worship now would be a recognition of your, your glory, your nature, your love, and the story of your salvation for sinners like us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.